Ladies and gents, you have arrived. Season two, episode one of Right Answers Mostly. Woo! <laughs> It has been a hiatus of a lifetime, emotionally, mm, spiritually, spiritually, and, and physically. I, I agree. Um, we are currently wearing merch shirts right now. We are. Our Navy crew tees. They're so cute. They're so soft. Mm, they are, really are so soft. Really soft. Um, keep sending us photos because we're going to do a post of all of our super fans That's in them. That's right. Did any of you get them for Christmas? I actually know of a few of you who did. Perfect little stocking stuffers. Roll them up. Mm-hmm. And great gifts for after the New Year's as well. So true. Because so we true, all Claire. need some light this time of year. January, February, March are my least favorite months of all the years. It is tough. Um, you know, just to do a little, a quick little high and low of season, season one for you. Mm, okay. What would you say? High and low of season one. Oh, yeah. God. Until we found Pirate Studios, that was my low. <laughs> Because the audio, our dear editor, Chris, would be like, Tess sounds great. Claire, what is wrong with your mic? So that was always a low. That's a good one. Yeah. And my high, it's probably, I mean, you guys, like the more that I found out people were actually listening all the time, the higher my ego went. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> really. We'll put a little pep in our step. That's right. What about you, Tess? Um, I would say, what would a low be? Um, probably technical difficulties, Mm -hmm. um, that I feel like Claire and I both get very overwhelmed, um, all the time. If something doesn't work for like two seconds, like, let's just go. (laughs) That's usually me. And then Claire's like, we need to think of other things to fix this. And we really compliment each other in that way. Yin and yang. Um, and my high would honestly probably be trivia nights. Oh, trivia nights. And guys, back at Waterfront, Mm -hmm. you know it, you love it bring as many people as you yeah, can that, because it's so mm-hmm. fun when like the energy is really high it's on another level oh, so yeah we just appreciate you guys for everything and um, looking forward to more feedback for season two I know I'm excited to get into season two for our subject today you guys actually voted on this subject we asked you on our Instagram to write in let us know and um you did we always listen to the people. We do. We're like the people's princess, you could say. And that might be next week. Um, Foreshadow. little teaser. Mm-hmm. And if you know, you know. Yeah. This is not the people's princess. No, 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 no. This is a fucking monster. But you guys wanted to know the history behind Charles Manson. Ah, I just wow. took a sip of wine and it. Yeah. We're drinking white wine because Tess is like, what should we drink today? Because, you know, we try to stick to a theme with the episode. And I was like, I... It's hard to put a liquor on something like this. I felt similarly when we did John Bonet. Yeah. It's for an instinct was red wine because it's murder and blood. Yeah. And then that's almost too on the nose. Yeah, that's what I was thinking with this one. Um, and then I was like, the only thing appropriate would be if we did like LSD, but um, we are not doing that. Maybe season three. <laughs> season three, who knows? Um, but that would be in theme with Charles Manson. But instead, we settled on white wine. It's always a classic. It, it never disappoints. Um, lovely choice, by the way. Justin, Sauvignon Justin. Blanc. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love a Sauvignon Blanc. Not an ad, but could be. Could be, Justin. Call us. <laughs> We're just trying to plug everything. <laughs> Getting desperate. Like green solo cups. Call us. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, so yes. 
I know uh, a few of you recommended Charles Manson. Our um, fan Jess was really excited about this as well. So this one's for you. Shout out to Jess. You might regret this after. <laughs> I, I honestly, I feel like when I did Tammy Faye, and I feel like there was another, uh, the Romanoffs, when there's like gory stuff, I hate looking at you. It makes me so sad because I can see how it affects you. I do have a low tolerance for um, for gore and blood yeah. and, and violence. This one's going to be tough. That's okay. Let's just all hold on together. I will say trigger warning at the beginning. Uh, trigger warning for sexual assault, uh, rape. There's going to be a lot of gory details in the murder later. We all know that murders happen. So if maybe that's not your vibe today, we understand and we'll catch you next week. Thank you for the warning. Yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, Should we start? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. I also want to give a huge shout out to the podcast, You Must Remember This, with Karina Longworth. She has a 12-part series on Charles Manson, and it's her research is incredible. It puts me to shame. Good God. She must have needed a stiff drink after those 12. No kidding. But You Must Remember This is a phenomenal history podcast, so check that out after this one. We love it. We do. All right. Let's get into it. Let's go. Okay. Charles Manson was born on November 12th, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Scorpio? Scorpio. My mom's hometown? Okay, so that's what I text <laughs> us. And I was like, there are a lot of, um, what did I say? She goes, there's a lot of things that are very close to home oh, yeah. for you. And I thought she meant emotionally. And so I responded, daddy issues. And she was like, no, like, geog- like, like physically, geographically close. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we'll get into that later oh, with both man. of us there. So, yeah. Yes, so he was a Scorpio in Cincinnati, Ohio. Shout out to the 513. Yep. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. Well, he was also born to a 16-year-old. Yeah, his mom was 16 when she had him named Kathleen Maddox. His father uh, was named uh, Colonel Scott Sr. I hate reading the word Colonel because it is spelled like colonel. It's shocking every time. I was just going to say, I don't even know if I would know how to spell that. Why would... Why is the English language like that? That's so rude, honestly. It's tough. Yeah. So his name was Colonel Scott Sr. And he had the local reputation as being a con artist. His name was Colonel. That was his birth given name. He wasn't actually a colonel in the army, but he liked to tell people that he was. We should just start calling ourselves Colonel. It's <laughs> like, we're not actually, but it sounds, sounds but cool. But it's good. And it also like, this is who Charles Manson's biological parents are setting it up always about the parents. Yeah. yeah. Well, so he, when Kathleen told Colonel Scott that she was pregnant, he told her he had been called away on army business, which, you know, remember, he's not actually a colonel in the army. And oh, after poor wife, not even, I don't even know if they were white, husband and wife, but uh, after several months, she realized that he had no intention of returning. Sometimes it, it yeah, that's, that's the way you find out, isn't it? Yeah. Where the cookie crumbles. But maybe we should tell people that we're colonels just in case things aren't working out. Like, army's calling. Yeah, um, we can't come into work today because we are... <laughs> because of the army. At war. Yeah. Everyone's like, just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, Charlie Manson never met his biological father, and his last name actually comes from his mom's next husband, William Eugene Manson, who she married halfway through her pregnancy... However, after Charlie was born, his mom often went on drinking sprees with her brother, Luther. And by 1937, William Manson divorced Kathleen Maddox and said it was on something neglect. Um, And Charlie Manson bragged that his mom was so neglectful of him that at some point she tried to trade him to a waitress in exchange for a pitcher of beer. 
Also, reminder, she's like 16 years old and she's going on benders with her brother. A pitcher of beer. That must stay with you for I mean, your entire life. No kidding. No kidding. Because it's not just, I mean, alcohol in general, but then it's a pitcher of beer. Yeah, it's not even like Wagyu or something. <laughs> That's like. It's tough. That's desperation. That that really is. So, um, in 1939, Luther, Charles Manson's uncle, and his mom, Kathleen Maddox, were arrested for assault and robbery and were sentenced to five years, five to ten years of imprisonment. So, five-year-old Charlie goes to live with his highly religious grandmother, which, you know, Once yikes. again, more on his plate to really unpack. Yeah, in, in therapy. Not therapy. Yeah, he I'm, never went to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he was like a really troubled child, obviously. He told um, Diane Sawyer in an interview that when he was nine, he set his school on fire. Yeah. He had an interview with Diane Sawyer? I think he had an interview with a lot of, and I didn't get around to watching the interviews, but they did interviews with him in prison and stuff like that. okay. I was like, is this before, (laughs) after? They're like, come here. Yeah, Diane Sawyer's like, hey. Well, Diane Sawyer, problematic. Yeah, no kidding. We've talked about her in the past. Mm-hmm. Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Brittany. Mm-hmm. All of the above. So um, his mom was released from prison after three years, and she marries this dude that she meets in AA named Lewis. And Lewis hates Charlie, and it's like, he's a problem. He needs to be sent away, which is also kind of sad because he probably just needed some love. Yeah. But um, so they sent 13-year-old Charlie to a strict boys' reform school that was for male delinquents run by Catholic priests. And to sum this up, he keeps escaping reform schools, committing crimes, and getting sent to just, like, more hardcore reform schools. At one reform school, uh, the bigger students routinely, again, trigger warning, routinely raped the smaller students and physically abused them and were encouraged to do so by the staff. Oh, my God. Which, when I think about that, I'm like, that's insane. But also, like, Paris Hilton talked about that in her, not, you know, just not— Maybe to that extent, but how horrible staff can be at these reform schools. Yeah, because that's all that was probably done to them. And yeah, that's all that totally. They know. And so they passed it down. What sort of school was it? Um, well, this one that specifically was run, it just says a reform school is run by Catholic priests. Oh, I was going to say, okay, so it was religious. Of religious. Yes, yeah. exactly. And um, Charlie Manson was constantly raped so much that he later said, you know, Getting raped, they can just wipe that off. I thought, um, I just thought, clean it off. That's all it is. So that's devastating. Whoa. So, I'm so sorry. So, he was very accustomed to that being routine. Yes. And not even that bad. No, that's just what it was. Well, then he learned to protect himself. He started doing this thing called the insane game, which is where whenever he felt like he was in danger— he would start screaming and convulsing and twisting his face up and acting like he was given or acting like he was getting possessed. And so then everyone would be like, whoa. I mean, that's pretty smart. No kidding. I mean, it's survival mode at that point. I think like that's what like a lot of young women are taught to do yeah, in just those like kind of situations of quote, act insane. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that Charlie Manson ended up being insane, but. Right. <laughs> but the, yeah. yeah. He was given an IQ test where it was determined that he was illiterate, but he had a high IQ of 109. I never know what IQ scores are. How do you test your IQ? No kidding. Is it, it's just like a general quiz? I have no idea. I've never. And I don't know like the scoring system. So like 109 could be so high or it could be so low and I would never know. I wouldn't know either. Yeah. So he's transferred to um, minimum security institution and he was about to be let out on parole when he they caught him raping a gun, uh, raping a boy at knife point. So he's transferred to maximum security and he's finally released on his 21st birthday. 
He's like, time to get that pitcher of beer. Yeah, no kidding. That my mom God, traded me like, in for. 21, baby. Truly. I mean, he's truly been in reform schools his whole life up to this point when he's 21 years old. And then, of course, he's known nothing else. Nope. So then he gets out and starts doing that to other people. Oh, yeah. Well, he one of his first things that he does when he gets out is he marries someone, a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Sounds healthy and romantic. He's 21. She's 15. So... <laughs> Is, that, is it legal to marry a 15-year-old? I don't know. I feel like in the 50s at this time, it's just like anything fucking goes. I think you had to get your parents' consent. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Could. Oh, right. So this is in the 50s. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, but a few months after, and he knocks her up, by the way. They moved to LA. A few months after, he goes to prison. She, While he's in prison, she has a son and names him Char- Charles Manson Jr. So. There's no need for two. Yeah, that's yikes. And we'll we'll get to him a little later. But, oh boy, I'm sure well, he's a gem. But it's what a tough <laughs> tough thing to be named after your father in that way. God. Yeah. So um, while he's in prison, they end up um, getting a divorce because she's like, um, "You weren't the man that I thought you were." Yeah, it happens. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna start off on culty vibes for Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. While in prison, he studied how to make friends and influence people. Dan Carnegie's landmark self-help book, which I think is like actually a really famous book. Okay. But it says things like, if you want people to listen to you, you have to make sure that they think it's their idea. Like stuff that can be a little dicey. Like how to gaslight people. How to gaslight people and make friends basically is what it should be called. Right. He also carefully studied religion as a tool of control and manipulation. Mm, Well. And especially Scientology is what he started really studying. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. And Scientologist in prison and he got super into that. What he would do though is kind of like take from everything that he would learn and then like take what he liked and then leave the rest, you know? So kind of making his own religion. Yes. Out of um, a bunch of horrible religions. Horrible things. Um, Mix and, and match. We can add on to that as he sought the advice from the pimps who were in jail and they taught him techniques for successfully coercing and breaking down the resistance of women under his con- under his control. The trick... Pick girls with self-esteem issues, preferably because of trauma involving their fathers. So. Oh, boy. (laughs) So troubling. So upsetting. I mean, also, like, who among us doesn't have some sort of issue? Raise your hand. Some man in your life or lack thereof. Please tell us you do. Yeah, right, right? We're not the only ones. But it's also just, like, so sad, you know? Well, women are always the victims. It's yeah, like, let's just, see what their trauma that we can God. capitalize on. So he learned that and was like, that's a great thing. Um, in 1958, he's out on parole but gets caught forging a check at Ralph's. And Shout out to Ralph. <laughs> Shout out to Ralph. <laughs> and um, they caught Charles Manson, and he was also transporting sex workers over state lines. And in June 1961, he goes back to prison in Washington State. And being back in prison was a relief for him because truly he has spent his life basically in prison. So he feels like that's home. That's home. That These are his people, the Scientologists and the pimps. Right. And he probably doesn't care about the repercussions of going back in because no. that's his He has a place zone. to stay and he yeah. knows how the system works in prison. And yeah. Um, well, in prison, he takes up guitar. Well, good for him. <laughs> And in 1964, so we're getting to 60s, the British invasion made it to Charles Manson, and he becomes a huge Beatles fan. Who can blame him? Who can blame him? The level that this man, the Beatles, and him—do you know much about Charles Manson? I literally know nothing. Just 
buckle up for this because he's he's just such a loser. He's such a freak also. But he, okay, and we'll get to losery. that. Hashtag he's losery. The most losery, like loser on loser crime. But he was obsessed with him because um, he saw how famous they had become when from like a simple guitar song. And he also saw the appeal to adolescent girls. Oh, God. And so he was like, they can just play a simple song and girls are obsessed with them. I must be bigger than the Beatles. Did he get the haircut? I, he was always like shaggy. 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 I don't think he had the um, the Beatles haircut in prison. Okay. <laughs> but he was obsessed with them nonetheless. And he wanted to write songs that he thought, and he started to write songs that he thought would accomplish that level of success. Uh, yeah. never, never pictured him to be a songwriter. God, it's and, always the worst when a guy brings out the, a guitar and imagine you're in prison stuck in the cell with that guy. Like, Could you stop? Oh my God. It's like our worst nightmare, <laughs> the worst date, but you just literally cannot get out of it. <laughs> he plays, um, his songs for this guy named Phil Kaufman, who was in the LA music scene, but was in prison for drug charges, obviously. Right. <laughs> it's the music scene in LA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Phil told Charlie that he knew someone at Universal and he could introduce them when they get out. So that That's gets they planted in Charles' head, and he's like, I'm going to be a superstar. We've been there, Claire, haven't we? <laughs> sure have. Big dreams <laughs> going to L.A. <laughs> Shut down. Shut right down. Quicker than you expect. God, it's tough. Um, but by 1967, he finally gets out of prison because of overcrowding. He's 32 years old, and he actually asked for permission to stay in prison because he was like, I actually don't know how to interact in the real world. And uh, don't you wish that they would have just let him stay in prison? And it's so horrible, but I can't help but think it's just so sad. It's so sad. Because this is like the whole prison industrial complex. Yep. Like, and everything that we, that needs to be changed. It's like, the, people don't know what to do. They're not set up. A hundred percent. It's, it. there's so many things that we can point to in this story and be like, this is messed up from society. This is, and mm-hmm. now I kind of sound like Charles Manson, but <laughs> I mean, it's. I know he's a terrible man, but you, you just think of his upbringings and yes. nature versus nurture. Exactly. And it's just really, he had no. Exactly. No, he no had hope. no chance. Yeah. Um, the only thing is, it's like people get abused and then don't end up murdering a lot of people. But yeah. But well, I, I'm not. I'm not saying. No, we, we know you're what not. He did was right. But it's just you can see that he had no chance. Yeah. So he moves to Berkeley, California. Shout out to Berkeley. Which again was like physical location. <laughs> My brother went to Berkeley for a couple exactly. years. Exactly. And now imagine Berkeley in 1967. Oh, it is cool. like, it's crazy. Like counterculture, summer of love is starting. And it's so different than when he went to prison in the 50s. Like this is a completely different world that he is in. Oh, shit. It's yeah. like night and day. Night and day. Well, so Manson used free love to his advantage and to manipulate girls. And I say girls because I'm not talking about people always over 18. I'm talking about a lot of girls, okay? And hippie communities of the 60s, I think that we all have this idea, like, it's great and, like, people were free and free love. But really, it was just, like, a lot of the same gender norms being used against women and men taking free love for themselves, Mm, yeah, like men having opportunities, but women not having the same ones. Yeah, and, well, yeah, and like lots of drugs and just a lot of girls, I think, 
getting taken advantage of. And like over-sexualizing women. Yes. Like even watching, like I watched Almost Famous the other day. And Mm -hmm. even that, I'm like, oh, so all the women are like the groupies and not wearing bras and sitting on the guy's laps. And they're like, okay, we're doing drugs. Exactly. And a lot of kids escaped to the West Coast and ran away from home and they were kids. So their minds are still developing and they're doing all these drugs. But that's that's a good point too. I I appreciate you. Thank you. Pointing that out because that's something that's problematic. don't think about as much. Yeah. Well, so he meets um, UC Berkeley campus librarian, Mary Brunner, and he talked her into letting him sleep at her house for a few nights and then it became permanent. And she would go out and work and he would just do nothing and like hang at her house. Like were they romantically involved? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. I imagine her being an older woman. No, (laughs) yeah, a librarian you would think. I know, but that once again, (laughs) stereotypes. No, Mary was a young, I think she was like in her early, early 20s. Um, but then he would start going to San Francisco and he would hang around the hate district and then he would play guitar in the Golden Gate Park and girls would come up to him and he would tell them that if they wanted the answer, they would have to give up their possessions and their individuality and submit to the oneness of the universe where everything was the same and life and death were continuum. So Charles will take this and run with it by saying life and death are the same. And that gets really dangerous because it's not the same. So that's, it's just an excuse to kill people. Yeah. No kidding. If you get people to believe that. This is like some um, Jim Baker vibes. Yes. hundred percent. Always bring it back to our own, own work. It's another, it's a different kind of cult. For sure. Just being like, give up your individuality, be one with the earth. It's yes. Like, pay us and you will repent yes, for all sins. Exactly. And it worked. And girls started having sex with him and giving him their money. And for a while, Mary was his only follower because she started like being like, he has the answers. Until in May when he borrowed a car and drove down to Venice Beach. Oh, well, look. look. <laughs> She's wow. at home everywhere. Truly all these places. It's crazy. Uh, it's haunting. It is haunting. Um, and he tried to uh, to try his teachings there. And he meets an 18-year-old, like I said, truly a girl still, you know. And he's like in his mid-30s at yeah. this point? Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. So he meets an 18-year-old redhead runaway, or again, a runaway, so issues with her parents, mm-hmm. named Lynette Frome, later known as Squeaky. Yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah. I think we'll get to that. Oh, God. But um, Charlie told her that in San Francisco, he was known as the gardener because, and I quote, taking care of flower children is what I do. Oh, I didn't know there was so much pedophilia involved with him. Uh, yeah. He's he's so gross. I mean, I'm not surprised, but. No, anything with like cults like that is just. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's such a douchey quote, too. But she buys it and goes back to Berkeley with him and meets Mary there. And then they move to San Francisco. The three of them? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it starts to be like polyamorous. Oh, boy. Yep. Um, they gained a third follower, Patricia Cranwinkle, uh, who later said, this is so tough, that Charlie was the first person to tell her she was beautiful. And that was the case for most of the women. Uh, I know. Why is that the 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 one adjective and compliment right. that especially a lot of women yes. in a very vulnerable state latch on to that and they're like, oh my gosh, nothing is yeah, nothing has ever felt better. I mean, I think as a woman, I know that feeling when someone tells you that you're beautiful and all of a sudden it's just like no, do you remember being like sixteen or yes. seventeen the first time like you're like, okay, I'm like finally like entering my adulthood. Right. And you're just so impressionable, mm-hmm. and that feels so sexy. Yep. And it's— And then uh, that's the person who gave you that power. Mm. Use the power within. 
Yes. And just don't like, don't put that much weight onto anything that anyone really tells you. 100%. Like good or bad, you know, it's not really about that. Exactly. Exactly. So that was the case for a lot of these women. And because of that, he could pretty much get them to do whatever he asked. So sex, stealing for him. Um, Pat gave him her dad's credit cards. Um, He would also have them all take a ton of LSD, but give himself lower doses so that he could be like, keep his wits about him but preach to them and kind of brainwash them. Oh, my God. It's so gross. Yeah. We haven't even got to, like, the big stuff yet. Um, They gave another family member, Susan Atkins, which Charlie nicknamed Sexy Susan. Not that original. (laughs) Think of something else. An alliteration. Bravo. Wow. (laughs) Um, But she gets them their first male follower, a college dropout named Bruce Davis. Also, now Mary is pregnant with Charlie's child. So that's great. Oh, God. Yeah. Charlie Jr.? Wait, well, we no. already have Charlie Jr. Oh my God, Charlie Jr. Jr.? He's already out there. He probably would be like, and this one's Charlie Jr. Jr. <laughs> Swings. Everyone's like, shut up. <laughs> Loser. Losery. <laughs> we said it. We said it. Um, in the fall of 1967, he gets into a school bus and tells his family that they're moving to L.A. because San Francisco had become too dangerous. But what it really was is that he was ready to take on his music career. And he told his family that they were going to change the world through a message that he would tell through music. <sighs> if someone's like, we need a move to change the world and my music career, I'd be like, no. I feel like this is called narcissism. And I decline. This episode is called narcissism. Wow. Um, So he thought he was uniquely talented and and that he just needed to get into the right room to make an impression. And I'm like, we have all been there. I was going to say, like, Charlie. (laughs) Honey, I understand you at this moment. I I do as well. (laughs) We can relate on just this. Just this. Um, And he actually did get an audition for Universal Music through his prison connection. Did that buddy. Was he Bill Kaufman physically attractive? So he was apparently like five six, so he's very small. If he were to walk by, be like, yeah, he's hot. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Not like hot, like wow, but he's not unattractive. And it's the '70s. He has shaggy hair and a beard. Got it. If I may be so bold, just yes. to get a, phys- um, a visual. Yes, pull it up again. Check out our Instagram at Right Answers Mostly. We will have these pictures posted. We'll I have all the stuff. The later pictures are probably pretty terrifying that you see. Interesting. He's not horrible looking. Yeah, no. So, yes. Okay, so his um, girls accompany him to this, like, kind of audition thing. Um, He shows up barefoot. But the guy at Universal was impressed by him with the power that he had over these girls. Because he trained the girls to be like, you listen to me. You do what I say. When we walk in there, you act like I'm a huge deal. And that Universal guy fucking fell for it. Wow, he's like, you have perfected the player, like, complex. exactly. So he um, gets him a studio session, and Charlie basically chokes because he didn't know how to use a mic, and he didn't know, he didn't like the engineers telling him what to do, and it was just a failure. He's like, what is this? (laughs) Exactly. It's also like, you're not a musician. You decided to play guitar in prison. Oh, God. That is not a musician make. Um, So they head over to to uh, Topanga Canyon in late 1967. Love Topanga. Love Topanga. Can only imagine what it was like in late 1967. So many drugs. Well, yes, I will set the stage. They first settle into a house known as the Spiral Staircase, where various cults and other 
gurus, I say in quotes. I feel like the late 60s was so all about the gurus. And it's just like, please. Yeah. Um, lived and hung out and where various famous people would go to get high, enlightened, and have sex. Um, Jim Morrison, the Mamas and the Papas, famous hairstylist Jay Sebring. Oh. I'll hold on to that later. Okay. Okay. Um, we're rumored to hang out there. Um, and then it was known to have like these like sex fetish parties and Satan worshipers and um oh, wow, really all extremes. <laughs> yeah, like all over. Like a little bit of sex, a little bit of Satan. Yeah, you know, best of both worlds. Yeah. <laughs> LA. God love it. God love it. So um this now in this era is where the Manson family um starts to have group sex become a major part of their family. And um Charles was, I was about to call, to call him David. <laughs> Charles David uh, was the director of these acid-filled orgies. Um, Would he partake yeah. and also be like? And also direct. Mm-hmm. Interesting. He gained a new follower here in his youngest, a 14-year-old girl. Oh, my God. Named Diane Lake. She was living with her parents on a commune called Hog Farm, but got, bu- but got booted from the commune for having sex with adults. And the other commune members were like, this actually isn't chill. You need to leave. But I don't know why the kid had to leave well, and not so the adults. She was exiled? Yeah. Even though her parents were probably allowed. Disgusted. Well, her parents emancipated her after that. And they were like, yeah, you can go to L.A. This girl never stood a chance. Oh, God. That's yep. so upsetting. She uh, first met Charlie at a party at the spiral staircase. He embraced her. He told her she was beautiful. And that he had been looking for her. And that night, the 34-year-old Manson had sex with the 14-year-old Diane Lake. And she became a member of the Manson family. So to become a member, you'd have to have sex with him? That was one of his tests, is that for the women, the men could just get in. The woman, he was basically like, all right, give me a blowjob. And if they didn't, he was like, you're out. Yeah. Uh, Which is also like, hey, maybe that's not someone to hang around with. God. And yep. they, uh Yeah. Yep, and they were also living a very scrappy lifestyle at this time. He would send his girls out dumpster diving, and um, the guys in the group would find old cars and fix them up and uh, trade them for what they needed, which was mainly drugs. So none of them really had a job? No, none of them had jobs anymore. Mary stopped being a librarian and was now a full-time Manson family member. Got it. Which I'm like, do it. She's like, who needs butt? <laughs> yeah. When my man <laughs> is a cult leader. Oh, God. Um, okay, so every night the woman would prepare dinner, and then they would give all the food to the men. And then once the men were eating, the scraps were given to the women. Yeah. Charles Manson is a sexist piece of shit. I did not know how deeply sex- sexist Oh, deeply was. sexist, deeply racist, and we'll get to that. Oh deeply everything. Oh deeply pedophilia. Yeah. Um, okay, so then Charles Manson would give them all LSD and then would preach, and then he would play songs, and the girls would sing along. And when he was done singing his songs, he would sing the Beatles. Everyone's like, we've heard this one a thousand <laughs> times. Mix it up. You know, he's like, I cannot hear Hey Jude one more time. <laughs> oh, man. Um, like your range isn't even that funny. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then... Uh, if there was enough men around, he would coach the group through group sex and telling each members what to do with each other. Yeah, so it's all the group sex. Um, early April, the Manson family had about two dozen members, and uh, like we said, he would accept any men, and the women would have to have sex with him, except the only way that a woman could get around this, there was an exception, if the woman came from money. For example, 
Dee Dee Shaw, who was the daughter of Angela Lansbury. Yeah, a part-time Manson girl. I'm not joking. He would pick her up from high school. She would use her mom's credit cards, and then she would buy them really nice LSD and weed. Yeah. So at this time, he must have had some sort of recognition that was desirable to be a part. Like, were people, was I, it secretive? Well, I like, think how it did was she just, fucking find out about it? I for, I don't know exactly how she, well, through these parties, like at the spiral staircase. Oh, okay. And um, she's a, his introduction, as we're about to see, to a lot of celebrities. But I think it was counterculture. And it's this guy coming mm-hmm. through and being like, the system, man. Don't listen to them. Life and death is continuum. And he's charismatic. And yeah. he's preying on people who have par- issues with their parents and haven't been told that they're love. It's just manipulation at its finest. Uh, so, like, if she was in high school and someone was like, have you heard about Charlie Ma- Charlie Manson? Would people be like, I have. I don't know yet. Okay. With her. It I might, think that's Bruin. She, yeah, it's Bruin. It's Bruin. Bruin. Um, and so he would, she, he started meeting other celebrities through her. And he would send out his mo- his prettiest and most sexually aggressive girls to places where celebrities would hang out in hopes that they could make introductions for him to these celebrities and get a record deal. And it fucking worked. Yeah. In the late spring of 1968, two girls were picked up by Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys. Yep. They were hitchhiking. So 60s. Uh, chic in the 60s. <laughs> chic in the 60s. Dangerous now. <laughs> yeah, dangerous now. <laughs> dangerous then. I mean, because he pulled over and asked them if they wanted to come over for milk and cookies. Ew. <laughs> oh, my God. Full circle. Full Santa. Circle. Yeah, did you guys listen to our Christmas bonus <laughs> episode? <laughs> if you haven't, go back. Go back. Listen now. Christmas never ends. You won't want to miss it. Yeah, that's right. You'll need it after this one. Oh, God. So they go to his house, have sex with him, do all that stuff. And then they come back and tell Charlie about what happened. And I don't even think that they knew that it was a guy from the Beach Boys yet. And the Beach Boys are huge right now. Yeah. Um, and so Charlie was like, I got to meet him. So later that night, they go to his house. Dennis Wilson isn't even home yet. And they just basically throw a party. Dennis Wilson comes home. And um, when he walks in the back and he sees Charlie, Charlie greets him like a friend. And Dennis asks Charlie, are you going to hurt me? Which is like, that's the first thing you say to someone when you see them. Terrifying. Terrifying. Charlie says, do you think I'm going to hurt you? And then drops to his knees and kisses Dennis's feet. So Dennis was like, chill. He's like, love this party. (laughs) It's like, you're great. Get me home. Get me home. No kidding. Um, They go into, and then he goes into the party. To the party. <laughs> to the party. <laughs> oh, man. I'm like a Jumpy kid. Tardy. To the party. <laughs> to the party. <laughs> um, he goes into the party to see the place full of Manson women dancing topless and was like, this is the life for me. It's like, actually, I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I love my new best friend. Yeah, I yeah. just kiss my feet. Uh, um, the party lasted for days and Manson was just spewing his bullshit also, like, a party, if I go to a party more than a few hours, I'm exhausted. How are these people not hungover? Drugs. Mm. It's the only explanation. I think the same thing on Summer House all the time. <laughs> same. Now, tell Different. us that. <laughs> but the but same. <laughs> how do you party for more than two days in a row? I, now like, even one day, I'm like, I, I can't. I'm knocked out for a while. Now, hair of the dog doesn't even really help anymore. Like, I'm getting I'm too old. makes it worse. It's true. Who are we? I don't know. We did say this a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. And we turned it up. I digress. The pandemic. Yeah, exactly. It's on everyone. Sure has, including our livers. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) um, Manson starts spewing his bullshit on to Dennis. And um, Dennis Wilson actually was a victim of abuse from his own father. 
So a perfect person for this. Yep. Um, and the Manson family moves in with him in his Pacific Palisades house and starts to live with him and just mooch off of him. And Wilson just becomes obsessed with Charlie Manson. He calls him the wizard. And he starts trying to introduce him to everyone. And it's like, he's a musician. you got to meet him. He's great. We should get him some recording sessions. Also, it's like, because Manson is offering up all the girls to have sex with him. Right. All the time. Uh. Yeah. Um, he introduced him to several influential people like Neil Young, who apparently tried to get Warner Brothers to sign Charlie. And they were like, literally like, he smells bad. Did he have a good voice? He actually has an album that you can buy on iTunes, um, and I haven't listened to it, so we can maybe right now, Chris. I don't know. Are we? Is it public? If it is public, we will insert a little clip of Charlie Manson singing right now. I'm sure it's somewhere that we can find it. Somewhere, yeah. Chris, let's do it. Let's Let's do do it. it. Your home is where you're happy. It's not where you're not free Your home is where you can be what you are Cause you were just born to be Now let me show you that So he also introduced Manson to Terry Melcher, who was the son of Doris Day. All these celebrity kids. Crazy. So Melcher was a record producer and Charlie made it his mission to have Terry sign him. Um, and Terry was like, this dude's a little weird, but he has girls that I can sleep with all the time. He has drugs, he's partying, he's fun, but I'm not into his music. Um, during the time Melcher also, during this time, Melcher also dated Candace Bergen. Oh. It's like all old Hollywood is so crazy. Who was renting a house at 10050 Cielo Drive? Mm. I do that thing where I'm like, I use O in... As zeros, you know what I mean? Like, I'd be like 10.05. Yeah, we'll say, yeah, something like that. Which is so weird. Like, why do we do that? I don't know. Yeah, why? But anyways, they were, (laughs) Terry, (laughs) Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen were staying at, or were renting this yellow drive house. And both Wilson and Manson frequented that house. But apparently, I've heard accounts that Terry Melcher was like, never let Manson in because he was like, I like partying with you, but. I don't want you in my house. Like you literally, you smell so bad. You smell so bad and you're creepy. Right. Yeah. Mm. So um, Charlie eventually starts to wear on Dennis Wilson and the shine rubs off. I bet he does. Yeah. Dennis actually pulled off a recording session for Charlie, but when an engineer tried to show Charlie how to use the equipment again, Charlie got frustrated and pulled a knife on him. (laughs) So... So that didn't go well either. And apparently it was starting to happen a lot. Uh, when Dennis Wilson would bring home a girl, Charlie would try to initiate them into the family, and that meant having sex with him. And once a woman said no, and he pulled out a knife and said, you know, I could cut you up into little pieces. And the woman dared him to do it. And then he shied away because he's a little, I mean, not that I wanted him to do that, but it's like, you're just so all talk. and Well, We'll get to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Dennis Wilson was like, all right, it's enough. Also, um, the Manson girls kept giving Dennis Wilson gonorrhea. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that kept going around the house. 
They're like, God damn it, it's back. He's like, well, this is a bummer. Were there antibiotics for STDs back in the 70s? We should. I mean, we should just do like a whole history of sex kind of thing. We really really should. Like a whole season. Season three? (laughs) Like literally a whole season. How can you break it up even into like 10 episodes? I know, really. So who, I don't know if there was antibiotics for gonorrhea at that time. (laughs) The history of STDs. Everyone's like, we don't really (laughs) want to listen to this. This is the grossest thing I've ever heard. Um, And it was estimated that the Manson family blew like a hundred thousand dollars um for dennis wilson because he paid for their food and medical bills and damage to his property so he had enough and instead of kicking him out he rented another spot and let the landlord kick him out yeah and um so god um so they um they lost touch until the beach boys actually recorded one of manson's songs um but they changed the title and i forgot to put it in but Char- Charles Manson found out about it. It became like a big song. And um, Dennis Wilson later found a single bullet in his bed. So they lost touch until that. Oh. Scary. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So after Dennis Wilson's house, Charlie Manson and his family head up to Spawn Ranch, which is 28 miles north from the Palisades. It's in the San Fernando ba- Valley, almost mm. to Chatsworth. Okay. And it's an old movie ranch. So it looks like a western town. and Is this like what was in Once, Once Upon a Time? This is exactly what was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm visualizing it. Yep. Not so much Lena Dunham because that brought me out of it. But I'm. <laughs> but you're back. Yeah, I'm back. Actually, you know that girl Squeaky? Yeah. Dakota Fanning plays her. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. So they live at um, Spawn Ranch. And so George Spawn, who was the old guy who was like in the bed or whatever. Right. Was the owner of the ranch. And he had owned the ranch since 1948. By the time the Manson family arrived, he was 81 years old and blind. Um, George liked Charlie. And they came to an understanding that the Manson, uh, that Manson and the woman would work the ranch in exchange for being allowed to stay. Mm. And uh, Charlie assigned one of his girls, Lynn Froman, Squeaky, to be George Spawn's personal servant. Yeah. Like sex slave? Everything. Yeah. Definitely sex. I mean, I think that I, he gave her the name Squeaky, and that is where that comes and from. And that was the 14-year-old. No, no That's Diane Lake. Oh. Uh, she's, she was 18 when he found her, and this was like two years. So she's probably like 19 or 20 oh, at this point. God. With an 80-year-old man. so Oh, God. Yeah. And she would um, manipulate George to give them control of the ranch. And by now, there's about 35 members of the Manson family that have joined that they've picked up along the way. Um, he had Tex Watson, um, who is a big key player in the story, reconstruct some of the movie set. And they made the saloon their chapel where Charlie would put um, would put the amount of acid he wanted them to take in their mouths and do his preaching, but now there started to be material like anti-Semitism and some other just really violent shit Mm. that wasn't quite in there before. Um, He would also have them play pretend and have the boys act like cowboys and pirates and the girls like fairies and elves. It's so sick. It's so sick, and it's so fucking weird. But they're all on drugs, so they're like, this is normal. And they're all brainwashed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, He, okay, so then Manson comes up with this thing called Helter Skelter. Have you heard this before? No. I'm, I'm so excited to take this, take you on this journey. I mean, it's horrible, but I'm glad that you don't know anything. I really don't. So the Beatles come out with their White Album, and it comes out in November of 1968. Manson gets his hands on it and tells the family that the Beatles have channeled his own teachings and put them through this album. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> that is, I mean, art is up for interpretation, but Bold. wow. 
Bull. <laughs> yeah. So um, he told the family to listen to certain songs that had messages just for them that were coded just enough so that the rest of the world wouldn't understand. Oh, God. And everyone's like, oh, my God, the Beatles yes, are talking to about us. us. There was a song called Sexy Susan or something. Yeah. And they were like, Sexy Susan. It's about her. I know. Oh, my God. That's bad. That's a bad coincidence. Very bad. Yeah. So um, also Blackbird, Happiness is Warren Gunn. And then, of course, Helter Skelter, which he said was just, uh, was the song to describe a coming race war between black and white people. Pour yourself a drink because this is what Charles Manson thought Helter Skelter was. Charles Manson thought that black people would overpower white people. And then would basically kill all the white people. And once black people came into power, well, also, the overpower white people, Manson and his family would go to the desert, find a hole that led them to a city where they would hide out while this race war was going on. Once black people came into power, Charlie Manson thought they would be too stupid to know what to do with it. They would emerge from the hole and take over where he would be his rightful place, where he would take his rightful place as the king of men and be God. Holy shit. It's all fun and games until oh. someone starts calling themselves God. Oh, it, it's very bad. So that is very troubling. So there was no person of color in the entire family? Absolutely not. He was extremely racist. Got it. Extremely racist. So this is his new project. And this is his Great. new thing to prepare his family for. Great. Yeah. Um, so all they had to do was, you know, go to the desert, hide out in this endless pit that led them to the city and waited out. Yeah. Then they start doing training in February 1969. He would deprive them of water. He supposedly taught them how to walk on sand without showing footprints. And, um, he would get, he gave all the girls knives and to make sure that they weren't scared of knives. He would stand them against walls while he threw knives just above their head and faces. Yep, they started trading in cars they had fixed up in for guns. Like, they were preparing for this apocalypse of sorts. Was there anyone at this point that was like, get me the hell out of here? Not yet. Okay. So, you're there's still, it's a cult. They're still like, this yep. is what I'm meant to do. Yep, exactly. Okay. I, I think that drugs really fried their brains, too. Mm-hmm. And it's also like there's that no That is what they say. <laughs> Right? Uh-huh. Um, there's no social media. It's like not like you can connect with people easily. Well, you don't even know. Yeah, that's what I always think about when we talk about these things that happened many moons ago. Exactly. That are like, you don't know another perspective. You don't know what's right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, and part of their training, they started doing these things called creepy crawls where they would drive around late at night, pick a house that they knew someone rich or famous lived in, break in, and just rearrange the furniture. Because they thought it was hilarious that they would wake up and be like, what the fuck happened? Which is horrifying. That's so unsettling. That gives me like the chills. That's almost scarier than like a lot of things. I know. Oh, it's like those little tweaks. Oh, this is like what I fear living alone. That I come out in the morning and like something's not right, but you don't really, and everyone's safe, but you don't. I know a lot of you guys had trouble with the John Bonet episode and it might be similar vibes for this one. That makes me upset. I'll stay with you tonight. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so while all this is going on, he's still trying to get a record deal. And he knows his last hope is Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, because Dennis Wilson got gonorrhea one too many times and God it's damn gone. it gonorrhea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he invites him um 
to come listen to his music. And Terry finally agrees to go to Spawn Ranch and listen to his music again. But he's a no-show. And you know this pissed Charlie Manson off because they got, like, everything ready. The girls, Mm. like, baked for him. And we're Yeah. And so Charles Manson um, was like, I'm going to go find him. On March 23rd, 1969, Charlie gets in his car and heads to 10050 Cielo Drive, Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen's home. He parks his car and walks up to the yard, but what Charlie didn't know is that Terry had moved out a while back. After telling his mom, Doris Day, about Charles Manson and his cult, pretty much, Doris Day was like, he's been to your house, you need to fucking move. And he did, and he moved to his mom's house in Malibu. Thank God he did. Oh my God. Yeah. So before he gets to the door, he was spotted by this name. I don't know exactly how to say. Um, Sharrock Hatami, who was a photographer working with a friend who currently lived at that house. He had never seen Charlie before, so he steps on the porch and asks what he's doing there. And Manson was like, I'm looking for Terry Melcher. Hatami uh, is his last name. Didn't know who that was and said, this is the Polanski residence. And as soon as this is happening, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, comes out of the house to ask who was there and her and Charles Manson lock eyes. Yeah. Um, and then Charles, and then they tell him to go back to the guest house where the caretaker of the house was living. He might know where Terry Melcher lives. The caretaker saw Charles and was like, I don't know where he went, even though he knows exactly where he went. But he's like, this guy's a whack job. Yeah. So eerie. Oh, God. I know. My jaw is just... I know. I can't believe they walked eyes. I can't believe it. Ew. Horrible. And apparently, they got on the plane the next day, um, the photographer and Sharon Tate, and the caretaker, I believe, was on that plane, too, and she asked, like, did that creepy guy go back and talk to you? That's, according to You Must Remember This, like, of an account that she, again, like, talked about him, which is just... So, this is kind of where we change the tapes. If we had it already, and it gets even darker, and we're going to tape two of Titanic. Tape two of Titanic. I'm always prepared for it. Yep, it's always tough. So it, it always happens in history too, right? It does. It's like it's all fun and games until yeah. until someone start claims murdering. that they're God. Yeah, yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Darcy Apparel. Guys, I'm obsessed with Darcy. So Darcy Apparel is a woman-owned boutique carrying emerging designers with an emphasis on sustainable brands. They also carry their own in-house designs made ethically using natural fibers. I'm telling you, all my favorite pieces in my closet are from Darcy. And everything is online at DarcyApparel.com. That's D-A-R-C-Y Apparel.com. And because we just love you, Rammy, so much, we made a discount code. Type in RAM15 to receive 15% off your order. That's R-A-M-15 to receive 15% off. We can't wait to see what you get. This is where Manson family members claim that he started getting even more dark and even more violent after Terry Melcher denied him. Mm. Um, Creepy crawls still happened, but but he started throwing the idea around that maybe they should break in and tie these piggies up and frighten them to death. He called, like, rich people piggies and all of that. And there was a Beatles song called Piggies, and so he was like, again, I know. Do you think the Beatles ever felt guilt? We can talk about later because the Beatles do address it later. Um, I'm sure they were like, I just can't imagine. Um, And he's just talking about death and violence all the time, how life and death is the same. He's really starting to try to drill that into people. 
Um, and this is where some people are like, I'm going to back up a little bit. <laughs> the family members? Yeah. Um, apparently someone asked like, okay, you say this race war is happening, but like, when is it going to happen? And, uh, Charles Manson said, I'm sorry. He's just such a racist piece of shit. He said that black people were too stupid to get their own race war started. And that's why it hadn't started yet. But because of this, he was like, I got to make something happen. And also we're starting to run out of money. We need to get money to go to the desert for the race war to start. Oh, so now he's inclined to like prove something, which is... Scary. Scary. So he has his family member, member Tex Watson, Watson, sorry, reach out to a girl who he lived with who sold drugs. And Tex told her that they had 25 kilos of weed to sell. She found a buyer who would put up $2,500 up front. But the thing is, there is no weed. So Tex gets the money and gives it to Charlie. Um, but uh, the buyer was a black name, name a, black, a black man named Bernard Crow. A.K.A. Lots of Papa. That's what people called it. Um, okay. I want that to be my new nickname. Would you rather have the nickname Deep Throat or Lots of Papa? Deep Throat. <laughs> Instagram bio. Yeah, that's period. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so Lots of Papa is like, fuck you. There's no weed here, and I just gave you my money. He calls Spawn Ranch, talks to uh, Charlie, and Charlie's like, I don't know where Tex is right now. Um, and he tells Charlie that he was a member of the Black Panthers, and if he didn't get his money back, or if Charlie didn't give him 25 kilos of weed, excuse me, then the Black Panthers were going to go to Spawn Ranch and kill everyone they found there. Lots of Papa wasn't a member of the Black Panthers. He was just mm. saying that. But mm-hmm. Charlie didn't know that. So he goes to Lots of Papa's house in North Hollywood and shoots him in the chest. Was this the first person he ever killed? He shot, yeah, in the chest. And then he goes back to Spawn Ranch and is like, hey, guess what? The Black Panthers are out to kill us. So it, it truly was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. Again, it's like. And no. just then perpetuating his racism. Exactly. For all the, like, we, we, were, we were justified yep. to think this. That's exactly right. Um, so uh, one of his, they also need more money. Um, one of his semi-family members, Bobby Beausoleil, was in the middle of a drug deal between a biker gang that would hang with the Manson family, sweet, sleep with the girls, whatever. Casual. And Yeah. And this one dude, Gary Hinman, who sold them mescaline for uh, $1,000. The biker gang claims that it was poison. So Charlie knew that he was going to go over to Gary Hinman's house and be like, give us our money back because that mescaline was poison. So he was like, shake him down, get more money. They go to Gary Mescalin's house. Uh, it's Bobby Beausoleil and um, Susan Atkins, Mary Bruner, and Bruce Davis. They basically kick the shit out of him. And Gary Hinman's like, I don't have any money. It wasn't poison. Also, it's like, it's Mescalin. Like, you probably had a fucked up experience, right. you know? Um, anyways, he calls, uh, trying to make this short, uh, or Bobby Beausoleil calls um, Charlie and is like, he's not giving us his money. Charlie heads over with Bruce with a samurai sword, cuts off his ear, and is like, you better give us your money, and um, ends up taking his two cars. They continue to beat him into the morning, and um, Gary Hinman makes the mistake of saying that once you guys leave, I'm going to call the cops. Oh, don't say that. Yeah, don't say that. Also, side note, what is with white men and samurai swords? <laughs> yeah, it's so losery. I just know so many people, so, unfortunately, <laughs> so many white men that are like, yeah, I keep one in my house. I'm like, let's not appropriate. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, no I'll, I'll, kidding. I'll tell you more about that You're later. Just so, uh, yeah, I, I want to hear more. We'll do a little bonus mini episode on that one. It's so troubling. <laughs> so troubling. It's nothing more losery than a samurai's word with, uh, for a white man. Truly. Like, come on, guys. So, uh, so Bobby Beausoleil calls Charlie and tells him that, and Charlie says, you know what to do. Um, so Bobby stabs Gary to death and the women were there too. Um, it was again, Mary Bruner and, um, I believe I said Susan Atkins. Yeah. And Susan Atkins, what a piece of shit too. Oh God. So it goes to the first murder was with a gun and the second is stabbing. stabbing. I mean, that's even it, it, not yeah. like you can really categorize how to kill someone, but it just shows that it's getting well. Uh, Charlie told him to leave a sign that implicates that it was a Black Panthers. And then that way the cops would think it was retaliation for lots of Papa. And then they'd be off the hook and then the Black Panthers would get so mad that they would start a race war. Whoa. I had no idea that like, Uh Uh I had no idea about this. So Bobby stabs Gary to death and uses his blood to make a paw print on the wall and also uses blood to write political piggies. Um, it took almost two weeks for the bodies to be, for the body to be found. And Bobby ended up getting arrested because he was caught with the knife. So on August 8th, 1969, Charlie finds out that Bobby was in jail and he's livid. Um, on that same day in Benedict Canyon at a house on Cielo Drive, Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, she's lounging by the pool uh, she, her husband, Roman Polanski was in London filming. He, he called her to tell her he would finally be returning by Tuesday. She had a couple of girlfriends over for lunch. She took a nap. She had her friends staying with her, Abigail Folger and White, Woj, oh God, it's a Polish name. Wojciech Ferowski, as well as Sharon Tate's ex-boyfriend, Jay Sebring, who was said to visit the Spiral Staircase house, as talking about earlier. Crazy. People do some fucked up shit for drugs. Yeah. But anyways, so later that day, Sharon called her sister, Debbie, who was supposed to come over that night. And she told her she was too tired. Let's do it a different night. The four people, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Verkowski, uh, and JC bring go to El Coyote on Beverly Boulevard. They come back home around 10 p.m. Um, they went to El Coyote? Yeah. That was, that's like. A famous, it's a Mexican restaurant in LA and it's still here today. I went to my friend's 30th birthday about five years ago there. It is so fun. It's so fun. Um, <laughs> that was the last dinner. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't I'm sorry, but it's a great, it's a great time. Yeah, it is. It's a great restaurant and it is like an institution. I think partly in LA because knowing this was the last place that they went. People are so gross. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, when they get home, Abigail Folger and her boyfriend, who is Fred Kowski, do some MDA. Um, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring go into her room. He smokes some weed. I like that people are just casually doing Molly. Oh, yeah. No, truly. She On, like, did, a Tuesday night after Molly dinner? and then apparently went into her room to read a book. Oh, God. That sounds <laughs> awful. So, meanwhile, at Spawn Ranch, Charlie gathered up his followers for a sermon. And he told his followers that Hollywood was full of pigs who were so wrapped up in themselves and they had no idea what was going on around them. Now was the time to wake them up. Now was the time for Helter Skelter. Charlie Manson will claim that he never told anyone to kill anyone. Of course. Yeah. But by 11.30 p.m., Charlie had a plan. He talked to Tex Watson and told him that it's your time to do something good for the family. 
Tex had taken acid that day, and him and Susan had snorted speed, so he was ready to go. Yeah. According acid and speed. That sounds terrifying. It's just, like, so much. According to Tex Watson, Charlie told him, I want you to go into that house that Terry Melcher used to live in and totally destroy everyone in that house, as gruesome as you can make it, as bad as you've ever seen it, and get all of their money. Like all of their cash? Yeah. And I think, like, anything valuable. It, he didn't even fucking know these people who lived in this house, but Terry Melcher used to live there, so. And he had wronged him by not signing him. Yeah. After his conversation with Tex, Charlie got Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkle, and um, Linda Cassabin, who was a new member, and told them to wear black clothes, grab your knife, and do whatever Tex told them. Charlie gave Tex rope, wire cutters for the phone lines, and security gate, and a gun, but to only use the gun at last resort. And he said, and make it look like it was the same people who did the crime scene at Gary's, to come back with the money, and if there wasn't any money, go go door to door killing people till they got some. This is pretty gruesome, guys, what we're about to get to. The group arrived at Cielo Drive just past midnight on August 9th, 1969. Watson climbed a telephone pole near the entrance and cut the phone line to the house, which is just so scary to think. Oh, God. The group backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the estate and walked back up to the house. They climbed the gate and they climbed over the gate. This is when Tex told the girls that they were going to go into the house and kill everyone inside. They didn't know that they were going to do that until this point. A man's name, a man named Steve Parent, I think is how you say his last name, was driving down the driveway at this time because he was visiting his friend in the guest house. Um, Tex Watson ordered the women to lie in the bushes. He stepped out and stopped the car. Watson had a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. He raised his gun to Steve. And Steve stuck out his arms and was like, please, I'm not, I'm your friend. I'm not, please don't hurt me. Tex slashes his arm and then shoots him four times. No one in the house apparently heard the gunshots. So that's the first victim of this night. Watson next cut the screen of a window, then told Linda Cassabin to keep watch down by the gate. She's the newest member. Watson removed the screen, entered through the window, and let Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkle in through the front door. He whispered to Atkins, and which awoke Frakowski, who was asleep on the couch. Tex Watson kicked him in the head, and when Frakowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there, Watson replied, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Which I will just say, and once upon a time in Hollywood, um... Tarantino did a great job of that line because they just fucking made fun of it and how fucking stupid that is. Totally. Um, okay. Yeah, it was more like a parody. Yes. Which, if you've seen that movie, that's not how it norm. No, I wish really that's went. how it, it, it did end. I wish. Me too. So Tex told Susan Watkins to find everyone else in the house and bring them into the living room. She held, um, at, she held all of them at knife point and said, don't say a word or you're all dead. Tex told Susan to tie Frakowski's wrist with a towel. Tex began to tie Sharon Tate and J.C. bring together by their necks with a rope and then slung it over one of the living room ceiling bit, uh, beams. So I don't know exactly how that worked. But anyways, Sharon was sobbing and Tex told her to shut up. J.C. Ring said, can't you see that she's pregnant? And Tex shot him in the gut. Um, they told him that they wanted all the money they've got. Folger said she had money in the bedroom. She had $70 in her purse, which today was 500 Thirty dollars and twelve cents. 
Tex was furious because that wasn't enough. Um, they were pleading with him that they could get more if they had more time. Tex walks over to Jay, who is still alive despite being shot in the gut, and Tex started stabbing him. Obviously, the women are losing it, and Sharon asked what they were going to do to them, and Tex said, you're all going to die. Fikowski tried to break free from the towels tied around his wrists. Susan pounced on him and started stabbing him, but he was much bigger than her, so she ended up just kind of stabbing his leg, lost control of the knife. Tex stepped in and shot him twice, then hit him over the head repeatedly, repeatedly with the handle of the gun. He still managed to run on the front lawn after this, um, and then Tex jumped on him, stabbed him until he was gone. Frakowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had been stuck in, struck in the head 13 times. Linda K- Kasabin uh, was at the car uh, watching, uh, keeping watch. She was hearing the horrifying sounds that were happening in the house, and she was a new member, and so she was getting so freaked out. And so she ran up and said, someone's coming to make them stop. And Susan Atkins was just like, there's nothing we can do. And they proceed. Um, Patricia was holding Folger at knife point. Abigail Folger is actually the heir to Folger Coffee as well. Patricia was holding Folger at knife point, but in all the chaos, she broke free. Patricia tackled her and stabbed her many times. She wasn't sure if she was dead, but Tex told her she would take care of it and to go kill anyone in the guest house. By the time Tex stood over her, Abigail, as she was dying, said, I give up. You've got me. And he, um, I think, stabbed her. And that is how she went. The three Manson killers went back in the house. Tate was the only one alive. She pleaded with them to let her live live long enough that her baby could live. She was like, kidnap me, let me have my baby, and then you can kill me. But both Atkins and Watkins stabbed Tate 16 times. Susan Atkins will later say, I didn't relate to Sharon Tate to be anything but a store mannequin. Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Tate's blood, trying to recreate a link to Gary's crime scene. And that was the murders of Sharon Tate and her friends. Oh, I feel like we all need to take a breath after that one. And unfortunately, the violence isn't over. So I say we just get through this. Okay. Okay. Are you okay? Okay. Um, when they got back to Spawn Ranch, Charles Manson was pissed because they only came back with $500. He said, you were supposed to kill everyone that you, like, go knock on all the neighbor's doors until you guys came back with money. The house cleaner found the bodies the next day. Polanski's agent was sent over to identify the bodies. By noon Los Angeles time, what was known as the Tate murders were all over the news. And Char- Charlie was shocked to know or shocked to find out that no one thought that this had to do anything with the Black Panthers. So, Manson, the four murderers, plus Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan, went for a drive the following night. And Manson told them that the night before was a failure, so we have to do it again. He told Casabian, uh, that's how you say her last name, to drive to a house in Los Villas, located next door to a house where they had been at a party once. They stop in front of the house where they had been at a party and go to the house next door, which belonged to supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. They parked the car. Charlie and Tex enter the house with a pistol and a bayonet. They went in through an unlocked back door. Lino was asleep on the couch. Charlie woke him up, tied him up, brought out his wife, Rosemary, who was in the bedroom. 
Charlie brought Pat and Leslie in the house and told Tex, make sure everybody does something. Then he gets back in the car with Linda, Susan, and Clem and drives off. He's such a fucking, like, I, I, again, I don't want him to murder, but the fact that he has everyone do his fucking dirty work is so gross. Disgusting. (sighs) This gruesome. Tex Watson begins stabbing Lino LaBianca with a bayonet in his throat. Pat and Leslie took Rosemary into the bedroom where Pat stabbed her a few times. And then Tex finished the job by stabbing her several times with a bayonet. They did a bunch of really gross stuff that I probably don't even need to go into. Um, Then they used the couple's blood to write rise, death to pigs, and healter skelter because Pat couldn't spell. Yeah. That really, wow. Because she's an idiot. Wow. Yeah. So I know this is starting to be a long episode. I'm seeing on time. So those were the Tate LaBianca murders. And it is. Obviously, I, again, just, like, want to honor the victims in that because that's a horrible, senseless crime. Yeah. Um, The police at this point don't—they just think that everything was a drug deal gone wrong. And they don't actually think that the two murders are connected because the LaBiancas didn't have anything to do with drugs or anything like that. So they just thought it was a freak accident. Um, They—the Tate people actually called— the detectives for the Tate case called the LaBianca case and was like, hey, just so you know, we had writing on the, or I think it was the opposite way around. We had writing on the walls and blood too. And then the Tate detectives were like, we think it's a drug thing. We're good. Which it could have been like right there. Mm. So also note that no one thought this was a race war. But Manson uh, told the family the war was on and they needed to move to the desert. Um, they needed cash. Okay, so they're back on Spawn Ranch. They actually have the police invade the ranch, and they all get arrested for Grand Theft Auto because there were stolen cars there that they had been tipped off about on the ranch. Mm-hmm. They're all released because the warrant was three days. They invaded the ranch three days after the warrant was set out. Um, so that set them back enough. Also, I want to note, on that arrest— There were so many children and babies in the cult at the time, and they were taken into child services. It's crazy. I never think of there being babies and children, but they were having babies on the ranch with them. Good God. Crazy. So they were taken into child services. Once they finally had stolen enough cars back, they head to the desert because they think Helter Skelter is starting to find this bottomless pit that Charlie said leads to a city. Um, and at this point, some of the families are really starting to get over it. They also are hearing more details about the murders and they're freaked out, but Charlie has them all in the desert now and they're pretty much trapped. There's also, they're running low on food. They're running low on drugs. (laughs) (laughs) So they were like, this is not what we thought it was going to be. Right. And Charlie would make threats that anyone who would leave would be killed. And they know what just happened to all these other people. Yeah, scary. Scary. But Tex Watson actually snuck out because he was actually getting paranoid, even though he led the whole fucking thing with the murders. And he got out right before the police actually raided Death Valley because the Manson family had set fire to some parts on a construction vehicle and park rangers saw it. They also saw a car there that had stolen plates. They're just so fucking stupid, these people are. I hate them. God. A few managed to hide, but 11 family members were arrested, booked on Grand Theft Auto and arson charges. All the women who were involved in the the murders were arrested this time. 
they still don't know they have anything to do with the murders. Charlie was actually in L.A. looking for money when this happened, and he thought that it meant something that when the police raided the ranch, he wasn't there. He thought that he was above this, and it was a sign. I just, like, I can't have enough eye rolls for no, him. Truly. Um, and on October 12th, the ranch is raided again. Police officer busts through... Police officer busts through the door to find seven people sitting around the kitchen in rags, but they didn't see Charlie until an officer saw hair sticking out of the cabinet. He approached the cabinet and it slowly opened where a small man uh, got out of the cabinet and just said, hi. Ew. God, that's the most disturbing thing I've heard. So scary. So So scary. (laughs) God. And it was Charlie Manson. Um, So... They book book them on Grand Theft Auto again, and Charlie signs his name when he's getting arrested as Manson, Charles M., a.k.a. Jesus Christ, God. We've seen this before. Yeah, we have. And it doesn't end well for anyone that signs off that way. Yeah. And apparently he was trying to, uh, like, convince the cops in the car. He's like, you have no idea. This race war is going on. They're going to come for you. I'm sure he was. Yeah. It's like, shut the fuck up, okay? The detectives... And the different cases start making connections. Also, Susan Atkins, who did the killings and said that Sharon Tate was just a mannequin to her, is in jail. And at this point, she starts blabbing to her cellmates, uh, Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, about Charlie and Helter Skelter. And at first, Virginia's like, this bitch is crazy, obviously. But then Susan starts bragging about how she participated in the murders on Cielo Drive. And the woman's like, Wait, you mean the Tate murders? And she just starts giving them all this information to her cellmates. Wow. Yeah. So Ronnie has a court hearing in Santa Monica. One of her uh, soulmates, not her soulmate, cellmates. (laughs) Or soulmates. (laughs) Soulmate, cellmate. Um, And while she's there, she's allowed to make one call. She calls the Beverly Hills PD and she tells them she knows who committed the Tate murders. They were like, call the Hollywood police. And she's like, I only have one call. Oh. But she manages. Well, like, transfer the fucking phone <laughs> yeah. call, guys. Like, Help relay the information. Um, she manages to get another call, tells the um, Hollywood police. Meanwhile, at the same time, detectives contact a member of the motorcycle gang that the Manson, um, that Charles Manson had tried to enlist as his bodyguards that were involved in that drug deal, you know, that whole thing. And they talked to this guy named Danny DiCarlo, and he told him him everything they knew he knew about Charlie, which was a lot. And as he was finishing up telling detectives what he knew, a couple of new detectives entered the room that had just got done talking to Ronnie Howard on the phone. And so they're like, bada bing, bada boom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So now we know they are con- connected. And at December 1st, the LAPD held a press conference that they had cracked the murders. And the state of California tried Manson for the Tate LaBianca murders with co-defendants Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia K- uh, Cranwinkle. Co-defendant Tex Watson was uh, tried at a later date after being extradited from Texas because they caught him in Texas. <sighs> I'm going to try to sum up the court stuff. Basically, Linda, what, who was the one um, that was keeping watch over the car during the Tate murders... And she was in the car when they went to La Bianca murders. She was, uh, on all accounts, uh, she was granted immunity in exchange for testimony that Mm. detailed the night's crime. So she became the main witness. And during this time, people start to become fascinated with Manson. 
half the people are like, this is what counterculture hippies will do. Half the people were like, look at him. He is a rock star. And girls were writing him letters in jail asking to join his family. It's like Ted Bundy. It is. And he like wore this like suit that his girls had made him from deer skin. And like people just thought he, I don't, he just. Oh God, it's so gross. Yeah. And original, and he loved the attention, you know. Originally, he insisted on defending himself. And the judge was like, this is a great mistake. Also, Ted mistake. Bundy did that. It, it's narcissism. Yeah, it That's just, what it truly, is. Truly, truly. Like, to think that you are qualified to do that. Yep. Uh, Charlie managed to get that judge thrown out. That said that he does, because uh, he said, fine, you can defend yourself and then actually changed his mind. And he ended up getting that judge thrown out because he said he had a bias against him because he didn't think he was fit to uh, represent himself, which is like, why are we just letting this guy run the show, guys? Well, we've seen it before. Yeah. Unfortunately. That is true. So in July, the trial starts. The first day of testimony, Manson, um, oh, also just, the, it was a mess. Manson's family was pissed that they that the Beatles hadn't come to their defense. <laughs> and Manson's team oh actually God. tried to call each individual Beatles as a witness. <laughs> and the, the Beatles, Beatles are like, we please want no part of this. Please exclude me from this narrative, yeah. one of which I never chose to be a part of. And there it is. And there it is. And there it is. On the first day of testimony, Manson appeared in court with an X carved on his forehead and issued a statement from Manson saying, I have x myself from your wor world. The following day, Manson's co-defendants, Van Hooten, Atkins, and Krenwinkel also appeared in courts with X cards on to their foreheads. Star witness Linda Kasabian was put on the stand. She was questioned for four days, and by the third day, Charles Manson started making throat-slitting gestures at her while she spoke, which I'd be like, look at God. him right now. Like, look what he's doing in the courtroom. <laughs> and, no, well, okay. Also in the courtroom, um... On October 5th, 1970, Manson attempted to attack the judge while the jury was present in the room. He first uh, threatened him and then jumped over his lawyer's table with a sharpened pen pencil in the direction of him. He was restrained, but while being let out of the courtroom, Manson screamed, in the name of Christian just justice, someone should cut your head off. And then um, also all the his Manson girls who were also on trial were in the room and they started chanting in Latin, I guess. I, I bet they did. I was going to say, did they start cheering? Yeah, they, they had to be like escorted out because they were causing like so much disruption. Why are bring them in? I don't like, know why. Gross. I don't know if it's because they're tried on the same case that they all have to be in there together. I'm not don't actually like it. sure about that. Apparently also Linda Kasabian after testifying went into hiding for the next 40 years, yeah, which I'm I don't. sure blame her and in november charlie testifies he talked about his childhood and that's why he made his family he just started spewing off bullshit being like i took these broken people in what have you done with your life classic classic on november 30th 1970 leslie van hooten's attorney ronald hughes failed to appear for closing arguments in the trial and he was later found dead in California State Park. His body was badly decomposed, and it was impossible to tell the cause of death, but people think that it was the Manson family because he failed to show up for her at one point. Wow. Also, just to add something else in, Nixon said something of, like, saying that he thinks that Charlie Manson is guilty. The next day in court, Charles Manson, like, held up a thing that said that Nixon is guilty, and his girls started, like, in unison being like, the president thinks we are guilty. Why should we go on with this? I just can't imagine being a juror in this case. Yeah, like, what do we think? <laughs> what fucking...
fucking whack jobs. Yeah. Also, apparently, Susan Atkins uh, gave her testimony and jurors were gagging at the details of the night that she gave. I'm sure. Yeah. Let's round it out. On January 25th, 1971, the jury found defendants guilty on all four charges. But now we have to, this is crazy. Now we have to decide sentencing. During that trial, the prosecutor, are we going to do death penalty? Are we going to do life in prison? The prosecution brought up lots of Papa. Of course they did. Well, do you remember who Classic. he is? Classic. Mm-hmm. He's the one that Charlie Manson thought that he killed. He didn't kill him. He shot him in the chest and lots of Papa acted like he was dead until Charlie Manson left. That was the one that we thought oh, was the yes, first he's killing. Still alive. And he was like, I'm coming back for revenge, right. bitch. Good because for you, Papa. At this point, they were like, should it be the death sentence? Should it be life in prison? And Charlie, the defense was Charlie Manson never told anyone to kill anything. Right. And they were all trying to take the brunt for him. Mm-hmm. And lots of Papa's like, actually, he shot me in the chest. So he was out to kill people. Damn. Crazy. Oh, also, just another crazy thing. Um, Charlie Manson uh, didn't... Okay, at the time, Charlie also shaved his head and says, I'm the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. And then his followers okay. shaved his head. Also, like, if I was a jury, I'd be like, say no more. You're insane. You're insane. Yeah. So on March 29th, 1971, the jury sentenced all four defendants to death. Uh, Tex Watkins' trial started in August, and he was also sentenced to death, although the sentences were changed to life in prison in 1972 when California abolished the death penalty. Mm. Just a little, where are they now? Tex and Susan found religion, which apparently pissed off Leslie Van Houten because she thought that they were finding, she thought that finding some deity to absolve them of their sins was a cop-out. Susan Atkins died of cancer in prison in 2009. Uh huh. Leslie and Pat both earned college degrees in prison and have been model prisoners and now show remorse, especially Leslie Van Houten. Um, on November 9th, 2021, so about a month ago from when we're recording now, Van Houten was approved for parole by a parole board. The board approval is now waiting for Governor Newsom's signature, but Newsom has denied her parole twice before. Wow. So she. I mean, this was a long time ago. Um, it's interesting to debate what you think now. She was always the lookout. Right. But um, she was a 19-year-old who was addicted to drugs and was in a cult. Yeah. So we'll see if she, if Gavin Newsom lets her out on parole. Right. Um, Manson was moved around to a bunch of prisons because no warden wanted him. And he made, an, uh, he made a deal with the Aryan Brotherhood for protection which is why the X on his forehead turned into a swastika. Um, In November 17th, 2004, Manson got engaged to a 26-year-old named Star. Oh, God. Yeah, while in prison. And on November 19th, 2017, he died. Charles Manson Jr. changed his name to Jay White. It's for the best. It's for the best always struggled with who his father was, and in 1993, he committed suicide. Mm. I actually don't know where the other Manson children are because I know he had a few with a few different women. Yeah, I'm sure he did. My video stopped recording because this episode's so freaking long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. Um, that is Charles Manson and his fucked up murders. Good God. 
It's a lot. I mean, I feel like the last 30 minutes, I was just shell-shocked. I didn't even really know what to say. I'm so sorry. I mean, I think this might be our longest episode to date, as my episodes tend to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Got the full story? Got the full story. Um, Some takeaways. Let's not listen to guys who call themselves God. Yep, that's the number one takeaway. You're beautiful no matter what people tell you or don't tell you. Yep, don't don't take that on. Yeah, don't. And who even fucking cares if you're beautiful or not? There's so much more interesting things to be than beautiful. And there it is. Mm-hmm. And, I mean. You okay? <laughs> yeah, just like staring off. And, yeah, it's just, it's a lot to take in. I mean, I need this happen. I didn't know the details. It's tough. I mean, everything about it is just really upsetting it's really upsetting and also like when I was starting this research I was like there's so much more there's so many more people who need to have their story told than this piece of shit but um we can still learn from these things and it's to honor the victims um no totally I think like you were saying it's you know brainwashing and mm -hmm. manipulation and gaslighting especially to women and younger women and I think obviously you know most people listening to this episode are probably confident enough to mm-hmm. not fall into a trap that would, you know, take yeah. them somewhere like this. But there's different levels of everything, and it's scary, and life is scary as a woman, as yeah. it is. We were actually we're talking about this at the at our holiday party of, like, there's different forms of this now, of, like, those Ponzi schemes and stuff. Women will always be victims of um, manipulation. It's crazy. Whether it's financial, sexual... You know, violence, it's just, it's, things have changed, but also things have not changed. It's very upsetting. And fuck those people who do that. Truly. Yep. Truly. So be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Um, I'm sure that was a difficult story to tell. It was a lot. I always feel guilty for the long ones, but. Don't feel guilty. You know, we have details and this is a great first episode of season two wow what a way to start upsetting and great it can be all the things when you have a history podcast i know i feel like i'm like where am i right now um but guys please uh please we really want you to be involved in season two yes truly let us know like any feedback we are very receptive towards Mm -hmm. it and we welcome it so um yeah, I mean, don't even be afraid to be like, guys, take a complete 180 and do this. Like, yeah, please let us know this we'll try podcast is for you. That's true. Um, we know that a lot of like subjects too that we might be discussing, you know something about, mm-hmm. but you listen to it because it's it's us yeah. and it's a different take on it. So like, please just be completely transparent. An open book. Exactly. Because we just want to make you happy. That's true. Well, we love you. We can't wait for season two and what it holds. We truly cannot. It will be a wild ride and stay tuned for a great season. That's right. We will see you next Monday. XOXO. Right answers mostly.